Philippians chapter 2. As a kid growing up, I often took things to the extreme. Uh, my family today might say I'm still guilty of that. Um, but that was my nature. And that may still be part of my nature, but certainly was as a kid. Um, if I determined to scare somebody, I had to take that to the extreme. If I determined to be ornery, I took that to the extreme. Uh, one specific instance came um, when I was trying to help my father, uh, but I took it too far. And uh, my dad, I grew up with my dad smoking cigarettes, and uh, I wanted to help dad quit doing that. And so as a kid, I just put a firecracker in a cigarette and then packaged it all back up. And uh, yeah, see what I mean? I take things to the extreme. That poor man lit that going down the highway, and uh, everybody had a bad day at work that day because of that incident. Uh, that was what it was like growing up with me. And so if you see my, if you're here tonight for the church fellowship, you see my parents, um, just say bless you, <laughs> because they endured a lot. Sometimes in life, it can be hard to know when to take something to the extreme and when to let something just be. Um, and as a kid, I was not good at that, and at times, I'm still not good at that. We come to a passage today where Paul takes something to the extreme. He takes it as far to the extreme as he can, but he's justified in doing so. And it's, um, it's a couple of verses here, actually chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, that if we were to just come across in our own reading, we, we might be tempted to think there's not much here. But the extremity of what Paul is saying is what we're to be taking away. How far to the extreme he takes his argument here is to be the point. And it's to drive home the point uh, of what he's saying. Now, since chapter 1, verse 27, through to chapter 2, verse 18, Paul has been talking about unity in the church. That's a lot of verses for Paul to be writing about. For us, it's been just over two months that we've been walking through these verses, discussing every Sunday the subject of unity and all its varying aspects. In these few verses, Paul has told us the benefit and necessity of unity. He says it helps us, in fact, it's the only way to survive threats from without. External pressures that come upon the church may be in forms of opposition or outright hostility and persecution or maybe just merely cult cultural shifts. The only way to survive threats from without, Paul says, is to be unified. He tells us the only way to endure threats from within is unity in the church. He tells us in these verses, unity is necessary for spiritual growth. He says it's necessary for the gospel's witness in the world. He tells us unity pleases God. He tells us unity obeys Christ. And much, much more. As we come to verses 17 and 18 this morning, he's actually beginning a transition. He's 
transitioning away from the subject of unity, though it's going to have underlying currents through the rest of the letter, and he's going to move to a different direction. But before he does, one last thing he wants to say in verses 17 and 18, one last moment to highlight just how significant, just how important he thinks unity really is. Look with me in verse 17 and verse 18 of chapter 2 in Philippians. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In these verses, Paul goes to the extreme to stress how important unity really is to him. He, he does that by highlighting it from both a personal and a pastoral perspective. And that's the way we're going to look at it this morning as well. There are other perspectives that I'll try to highlight and talk about occasionally. But primarily, how important is unity in the church from a pastoral perspective? And Paul takes it as far as he possibly can. Now remember, for Paul, unity in the church is the necessary expression of salvation. In other words, to say, if a person saved, Paul teaches that it will most naturally, and perhaps even first and foremost, express itself, that salvation will express itself by unity or unifying oneself with God's people, with God's body. So the church, being a part of the church, doesn't save you. But being a part of the church is an obvious expression of whether or not you are saved. It's the most quick and natural fruit of a heart that's born again. So for Paul, true faith expresses itself in unity in the church. We see this in two key phrases. Back to chapter 1, verse 27. That's the first key phrase where Paul highlights this. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he goes on from that point to talk about being unified with the people of God. So to live worthy of the gospel, to live like you're saved, to live like the gospel's influencing you, is to live unified with God's people in love and in harmony with God's people, in affection with God's people. In chapter 2, verse 12, the second key phrase of this text, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now we know he doesn't mean earn your salvation. We know he doesn't mean figure out your salvation. He means express your salvation. Work what's on the inside to be influencing what's on the outside. Your salvation isn't just a private matter. It's not just an internal matter. The internal reality of our faith in Christ is to influence and radically change, dramatically change, our external actions and behavior. Our problem is we often get those things reversed. And so then any hint of, of being called to a standard or called to works, we refuse. But God all the time is calling us to certain standards. God all the time is calling us to certain works. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul tells us, you have good works prepared from beforehand that God would have you do. How about in Leviticus and in 1 Peter, where God says, be holy because I'm holy. 
He calls us to works. He calls us to certain standards. But only in the proper order. That's if you're first saved. He doesn't call you to be holy to be saved. He doesn't call you to do good works to be saved. But He says, if you are saved, then be holy like I am holy. If you are saved, do good works like you're supposed to do good works. And that's what chapter 2 verse 12 is getting at. If you have salvation, then work it out. Live by it. Express it. Let what's on the inside manifest itself on the outside. Now remember, that phrase is wedged right in the context of church unity. So what's the most natural expression of the salvation that already exists in your heart? It's being with God's people. In harmony and love and unity. Being with God's people. It is an oxymoron for the New Testament. For someone to profess salvation in Christ and perpetually be divorced from His church. It doesn't make sense. There's no category for that in the Bible. The Bible instead says, how do you know you're saved? Or how do you, you know somebody else is saved? What's one of the assurances of salvation? 1 John 4. Well, how do you interact with God's people? Do you love them? Do you devote yourself to them? Do you unify yourself to them? Are you walking and living with them in harmony? Do you care for them? For Paul, unity with God's people is a necessary expression of salvation. Now let me recap real quick as to why this is the case. The answer is because it's all and always a matter of the heart. When we're saved, when we're converted, our hearts are changed. And now we go from enemies of God, rebellious to God, to actually loving God. That's the, the most fundamental thrust of salvation. Yes, we're made right with God but we're also called to relate to God, which means when our hearts are converted, they're changed to now love God. If our hearts love God, then they love the things of God. And what does God love most? It's His people. His bride. He gave His Son for His people. Christ is coming back for His bride. So to have a new heart that loves God means you increasingly love the things of God, primarily the people of God. Jesus says that in John chapter 13, verse 35, the whole world will know you're my disciples by what? The love that you have for one another. In 1 John chapter 4, again, John writes and he explicitly connects our salvation with our love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, if you know God's love, you'll love God's people. And then he says the opposite. If you don't love God's people, you don't know God's love. He pulls no punches. He explicitly connects the subject. So to love God, which is to have a converted, changed, saved heart, to love God is to love His people, and to love His people is to want to be around them, want to care for them, want to encourage them, edify them, let them edify you, etc., etc., etc. In other words, belonging to a church family. And not just in name, but in great devotion. 
So let me reiterate, because I dare not let anybody be confused about this. Being in the church does not save you. But being in the church is a fruit of the salvation that you already possess in Christ. Additionally, I would add, such biblical unity is an expression of your salvation because it can be explained in no other way. What causes one person to commit themselves so deeply for a, another individual, another imperfect individual, a uh, different individual, sometimes even a stranger? What can bind a whole people together? You think about this, even in the context of marriage, how hard it is for two people in our world to stay together for life. Divorces, the divorce rate is astronomical, isn't it? Human beings struggle just in one relationship, just in one commitment. How does a whole church of people commit together? How does a whole church of people stay unified? How does a whole church of people live together for life? If not for the gospel influencing, indeed, changing our souls, changing our hearts, changing our minds, changing our perspectives. Unity is an expression of salvation. Unity can't be explained by any other way than salvation. God being present in the heart. So, Paul is reminding us, unity is important. Unity is a matter of salvation. Unity is a matter of the heart. But here in verse 17 and 18, he elevates it even more so than that. And he reminds us, I give my life for such matters. Verse 16, he ends verse 16 with two important words. They're common words for him, but they're important words nonetheless. It's the word run and the word labor. He says, I've ran and I've labored for you. Now in verse 16, he's saying, I, I want to know that I haven't run in vain or, or labored in vain. I, I want to make sure that I, I don't have a misplaced hope here. That's why I want you to express your unity. That's why I want you to overcome your differences. That's why I want you to resist any conflict because I want to know that I haven't, I haven't labored in vain. And how do I know I haven't labored in vain? How do I know your faith is real and genuine? It's by your unity. By the way you interact and relate with one another. But the point I'm trying to get at really in verse 16 is the fact that Paul did run and he did labor for them. Specifically for their faith. Even more specifically, for their faith to be expressed in unity with each other. That's the desire of any pastor. That's the desire of any, any church plant. Any church planter. Not just to have people saved, but to have those people saved and gathered together in, in fellowship. In relationship. In love and in unity and harmony. Paul says, that's what I give myself for. Now these words run and these words labor, they imply strenuous effort. Serious kind of effort. The kind of effort that tempts you to give up 
because it's just really hard and it requires a lot of you. It's the kind of effort that implies deep, serious, lasting commitment, even that requires personal sacrifice. And Paul is saying, I have run for you. I have labored for you. Committed myself to you. Sacrificed for you. Put in the serious, strenuous effort for you. But then he comes into verse 17. He says in verse 16, I want to make sure that effort isn't in vain. But let me tell you in verse 17 just how serious I am about this matter. More than just running, more than just laboring. There's more to it. He says, even if. It means that what he's about to say isn't a guarantee, but a possibility. And more than just a possibility, it implies for Paul a sincere willingness for what he's about to say. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of your faith, I'll be glad. How far is Paul willing to go for these Philippian Christians to grow in their faith and to express their faith in church unity? He's willing to be poured out. That's a metaphor that both Gentile and Jew would have understood. His Jewish friends would have understood and and his Jewish perspective is what he's writing from. But even the Gentile audience of, of Philippi would have understood. That's because both Jew and Gentile in their respective religious beliefs had drink offerings. In the Gentile pagan religions, uh, people would often pour their wine out on the ground in certain rites and rituals and times of the year as a tribute to the, to the gods. In the Jewish religion, Jewish faith, specifically in the Old Testament book of Numbers, we read of drink offerings being offered to God, but they were offered in addition to other sacrifices, specifically and primarily the burnt sacrifices. And oftentimes those drink offerings would be poured onto the sacrifice itself or at least on the altar by the sacrifice. And as it evaporated, the aroma would go up to God. Either way, the audience would have understood what Paul meant when he says, I am willing to pour myself out for you. To sacrifice. Now he uses this same metaphor elsewhere. Specifically in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. He says in verse 6 of chapter 4 in 2 Timothy, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. And we know what he's talking about there. 2 Timothy is the last letter of Paul that we have in the New Testament. He's about to be beheaded before he writes this. He knows his end is near. When he writes in 2 Timothy 4, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. He means death. My life is over. He doesn't write that in despair. He's already said to the Philippian Christians in chapter 1, to die is better. To die is gain. To depart and be with Christ is far better than anything else. He doesn't write that he's in despair over being poured out. 
Indeed, here in chapter 2, verse 17 of Philippians, he even says it's a good thing to be poured out. And he's willing, in verse 17, willing to give my life, to spend my life for your spiritual growth. And specifically here, so that you guys will all get along. That you'll be bound together in the gospel. Going back to the language of chapter 1, standing together side by side, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. Overcoming your own selfish ambitions and your own selfish desires to, to bear witness to the gospel and to edify one another and encourage one another to grow in grace and enjoyment of the Lord. I will give myself for your faith to grow and your unity to be sure. Paul has quickly elevated how important he thinks this subject matter actually is. He knows it often determines the health and even longevity of churches. He knows it determines the gospel witness of a church. He knows it determines the spiritual well-being of members of a church. Even further than this metaphor of just merely giving his life, there's, there's more to it. The metaphor of pouring out implies doing so deliberately and over a sustained period. Now we could read this and we could think, uh, you know, if we're going to use the imagery here that Paul just means taking a cup and dumping it over and quickly pouring it out and being over with it. Done with it. But if we connect it back to the words run and labor as I think we should, that implies long-term pouring out. Slowly pouring myself out. Not just spending myself in one instance or another instance or in a quick moment, but over a long period of time, putting forth the sacrifice. Over a long period of time, putting forth the commitment to be poured out for your faith. To be poured out for the church's unity. I think such a commitment is astounding. Built out of the grace of Christ. I don't know many people that would give their own life for their own faith. How much more for the faith of somebody else? For the spiritual growth of somebody else? For the health and well-being of a whole church of people? As I said at the beginning, this is the pastoral and personal perspective of Paul. But it should be the pastoral heart of every pastor. I know from both countless testimony of, of friends in ministry and even from personal experience that at best, most churches have a confused relationship with their pastor 
and at worst, an entirely wrong, misunderstood relationship with their pastor. And that really goes both ways, right? There are many pastors who use the church only for their own agenda. And they rule over people in a domineering fashion. First Peter 5 tells us, don't be domineering as pastors. But the other end of the spectrum is that oftentimes people in the church don't know how to relate to their pastor. Sometimes they emphasize that he should be a shepherd. Other times they emphasize that he should be a preacher. Other times they think he should just be a counselor. Other times they think he's just the complaint box. You just write your suggestions and, and drop them in his email. I mean, the spectrum is wide. I would say the primary calling of a pastor, indeed his workload, is to pour himself out for the faith of his people. To spend his life for the spiritual growth of others. That means saying no to a lot of good things. And fighting off a lot of bad things. And having an annoying laser-like focus. It's usually wildly unpopular. That perspective. We see that in Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church. Paul kept driving them to grow in the faith. To trust in Christ. Be conformed by Christ. Live like Christ. And what did they do? They rebelled. They, they didn't have a good relationship with Paul. It's also wildly difficult because we're all sheep and we all like to wander. And we see that in Paul's relationship with the Galatian churches. How difficult and even painful it was for him to write and say, what are you guys doing? What are you believing? What are you practicing? Come on. But as we see in this text, it's always necessary and always for the sake of the good for the pastors of God to be laser-like focused on the faith of God's people. You know, we don't just preach church unity so that we make our jobs easier. I believe with the Apostle, it's an aspect of spiritual growth for us all. And the pastor is to devote himself to that. He's to pour himself out for that. He's to spend his life, sacrifice his life for such things. But notice in verse 17, he doesn't do it alone. And he's not supposed to do it on his own. So the best way to describe the relationship between pastor and people is with the word partnership. I'm a good Southern Baptist. Those all had peas in them. Pastor-people partnership. Easy to remember. In verse 17, he says, I'm willing to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Now some, some people, let me just clarify this because your Bible might say it a little differently and your footnotes might even say it a little differently in your Bible uh, if you have a study Bible. Some people interpret this to re refer to a faith that is marked by sacrifice. A sacrificial faith. So a faith that leads you to personal sacrifice. Well, I don't think that's what 
is right. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think he's employing the same metaphor uh, that he uses for himself. I think he's calling their faith their sacrifice to God. So instead of needing Old Testament sacrifices to honor God, our faith now honors God. Our faith now acts in the stead of a sacrifice. And so we offer to God as a sacrifice our faith. Not for salvation. Christ is the only sacrifice for our salvation. But to honor God, to to walk with God, we offer our faith to Him as our sacrifice. Now Paul says, I'm willing to be poured out upon that. That sacrifice of faith. That faith as a sacrifice. And that's customary for the Jewish rite of a drink offering. As I said earlier, it was usually poured out on the burnt offering or next to the sacrifice. But never by itself. Another sacrifice was always required. The same is true for unity and spiritual growth in the church. A pastor or a church leader can and should pour himself out. But it is to of no avail if there's not also the desire in the people to grow spiritually. If there's not faith in the people, if there's not the sacrifice of faith offered to God for the individual, if they don't want to put forth the effort, if they don't want to walk with God, if they don't want to conform their lives to the image of Christ, the likeness of Jesus, it doesn't matter how much a pastor sacrifices, his work will be in vain. It's a partnership, a two-way street. For the church to have unity and for the church to grow in faith, well, for the pastor to pour himself out and count for anything, There must first be actual faith and desire to grow in that faith. That first and foremost means you must be born again by Christ. And you must be born again by Christ as an individual. It doesn't matter if there's a pastor in your family. It doesn't matter if you're friends with the pastor if your name's on the membership rolls of the church, if you go to the pastor for counseling, if you have a whole bunch of Christian friends and Christian books and Christian podcasts, that stuff does not matter. Not one iota. If Christ hasn't caused new birth in your heart. And we mean new birth on an individual basis. Not the faith of your parents. Not the faith of your spouse. Not the faith of your kids. Not the faith of your girlfriend or your boyfriend or anybody else. Your own faith in Christ that has led to a true, genuine, personal salvation in the Lord. Your proximity to Christ does not matter or count. You must first be saved yourself. You may have all the benefits of a pastor pouring himself out for you, for your life, for your faith in Christ. You might have some of the benefits of the church splash out upon your life. But that will not make you right with God. You must first if you will benefit anything from the unity in the church, 
you must first have your own personal relationship with our Lord Jesus. There's no skirting around that. But if you are saved, let's, let's say this morning that you know you have the assurance of salvation in your life by the grace of Christ and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. You know you're born again. You have to want to keep growing. That effort that Paul mentions when he says, I ran for you and I labored for you. That's a two-way street as well. Effort has to be put out by the individual. Paul says, I'm willing to be poured out, but I can only be poured out if you already have faith. And if you want to grow in that faith. I can write to you and I can preach to you and I can labor with you to tell you over and over and over again about the importance of unity and the importance of loving your brothers and sisters and the importance of asking for forgiveness when you mess up and, and on and on and on down that list and extending forgiveness. We can talk about things. We can write about things. All this. It doesn't matter unless you also put forth the effort. Unless you also submit your life to Christ. Surrender your will to the Lord's leading. Be molded by the Word of God. Devote yourself to following Christ. The relationship between pastor and people is one of partnership. We do this together. In chapter 4, verse 1, I've referenced this verse a lot in this series through Philippians. Paul writes to them and he says, my brothers and sisters is implied there, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It's, it's beautiful language. I can't get over it. I, I love that phrase to describe how he feels about these people. But that statement is only true if both parties are equally committed and involved. In other words, when he stands before the Lord, when Paul stands to give an account before Christ, he believes these Christians will be both his joy and his crown. He says in verse 16 of chapter 2, I want to be proud in the day of Christ that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. And that's not a, that's not a selfish boastfulness. He's already said, we don't boast in anybody but Christ. I have no reason to boast in myself. He's saying, when we stand before the Lord, I want us to give a testimony together of God's grace in our lives. After all, we're in this together, aren't we? We move together. We work together. We live together. We think together. To a large degree, perhaps a larger degree than most of us realize, our spiritual well-being is dependent upon each other. You bring sin into the camp, it affects the whole camp. You bring leaven into the loaf of bread, it affects the whole loaf of bread. 
You go after a brother who's sinning, you cover a multitude of sins and save his soul from death. We need each other. Paul writes, he says, I'm pouring myself out in verse 17. I'm so willing to do that. You also put forth the effort. This is a, a partnership. We're in this together. Now he summarizes or wraps up in verse 17 and 18 with two similar phrases. He says, if I, if I have to be poured out upon your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, if you're not a Christian or you're not used to Paul, maybe you're a new Christian, you're not used to reading Paul, this just sounds bizarre. To give my life for you makes me rejoice. But again, he's elevating the importance of spiritual growth amongst and in and with the people of God. He says, so I'll be glad to pour myself out and I'll rejoice. And notice he says, the key word here is, with you. With you. Two things to be said about that very quickly. First, it implies that Paul's with these people. In other words, I'm in the trenches with you. I'm fighting for your unity. I'm fighting for your well-being. I'm fighting for your faith. You're not alone in the war. You're not alone in the fight. You're not alone in the struggle. You're not alone in overcoming difficulty and overcoming conflict. We're in this together. I'm with you. But it also means that Paul believes his sacrifice and their sacrifice will breed joy for them both. In fact, Paul's conclusion is that such a life such a sacrifice, such a relationship, such effort can only yield joy. Because he adds to this the, the verse 18, the phrase in verse 18, likewise, which means just like I said before, similarly, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. If we commit to this relationship, if we prioritize unity, if we value the spiritual well-being and spiritual growth of each other, if we're concerned about the faith of one another, it'll yield joy and gladness for us both. And we'll share it together just like we share the pursuit of it together and the trials of it together and the effort of it together. You with me and I with you. Again, I would come back to say in the end of verse 18, this implies that you must first be saved. You cannot rejoice with the apostle if you don't also have salvation in your heart by Christ. But if you do have salvation in your heart by Christ, then such commitments by the apostle or other brothers and sisters should produce joy in your heart. I'm glad that I've had men and women in my life committed to such goals as this. Committed to me. Committed to my spiritual well-being. My spiritual faith. And they sacrificed. They let me sit around their family and their dinner table. They let me be around on holidays. They took me aside privately. 
gave me advice and shared wisdom. Such relationships yield joy, church. I think Paul's saying we can have that on a grand scale. We can have that as a whole church of people together. Joyous relationships that drive us to Christ. That birth unity among us. So, Paul's view of unity as he wraps up this subject in chapter 2, verse 18. His view of unity in the church is as an expression of truly converted people. He's taught us that nothing but true salvation can yield true unity. And few things like true unity express that true salvation. And before he moves on, he gives them one last thought here of how important he thinks this is. He's willing to even give his life for it. The question is, are we? Are we willing to commit? Are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to lay aside our selfish ambition and preferences? Are we willing to put forth the effort that's required? Do we believe that we will have the harvest of joy with such things as church unity? Will we fight to preserve and protect it? Will we fight to prosper it amongst ourselves? Do we really believe it helps our gospel witness? Helps the well-being of our brothers and sisters? Honors God and pleases God and obeys Christ? Well, the answer is, if we believe any of that, then as he began this section in chapter 1, we should stand together, firm in the faith, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened by our opponents, not threatened by our opinions, honoring Christ with our commitment to each other. Unity in the Scriptures, it's not a secondary issue. It's a primary function of the church that Christ has blessed us with. And He calls us to it. He calls us to live by it and to pursue it. And in the midst of pursuing it, to make the Gospel compelling, attractive, and beautiful. Because the only way we're bound together in love is because Christ first loved us. Father, help us to love each other as You have loved us. Help us to realize that when we love each other, we show love for You. Increase our affection. Protect and bless our harmony. Give us unity around Your Son and His Gospel and saving message. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.